Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the first weekend of November 2023. We are into bird vagrant season pretty pretty well. It has been a pretty good year here for birds in Sitka, some unusual ones. Not many that I haven't seen before, but some different variations that were fun. A purple finch, a male purple finch with some nice coloring showed up at my feeder this past week. There was a black and white warbler, only the second for Sitka, and maybe one of a dozen or so for the state of Alaska. Showed up on one of the residential islands here. And a brambling showed up just a couple of days ago at Muller Park with some juncos. So it is a good time of year to be watching for unusual birds. And if you see any, I'd love to hear about it. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com. Or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded this past week with Zach LaPerriere. He's a returning guest, woodworker, outdoors person. I always enjoy talking with him. We'll go ahead and join the conversation with me asking him about his wood stash. I saw something you posted on Instagram, I guess it was. is where I saw it anyway. Maybe you posted it elsewhere. It was a little square of cedar, which you said was a lot of wood or a lot of years of wood. Maybe that's the way to put it. It wasn't a lot of wood, strictly speaking, but a lot of years of wood. So, and it seemed like that was out of your wood stash, which intrigued me. So I don't know how many people have wood stashes, probably more than I realize. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was curious to hear a little bit about your wood stash. Oh boy. Uh, well, I, I hope I don't uh, reveal any great secrets here. Not that I could. Oh, I just have collected a lot of things over the years. Um, And, you know, the funny thing is that people give me things that they have collected as well, uh, including some things that go back, uh, boy, even to the 70s and 80s. So I'm mostly focused on local stuff. So if somebody tells me like, oh, they have some crazy, weird, exotic that they don't know where it came from, I'm usually not that interested and try to send it elsewhere. But uh, that picture in particular was chainsaw milled from a salvage log in the early 80s. And I happen to own those chainsaws now, which is kind of a neat thing. So a local fellow uh, who could even be listening gave me some wood. And those are the end cuts from, uh, from the project that I completed for a customer. And so, yeah, crazy slow. I mean, it was probably at least a thousand-year-old tree would be my guess, uh, judging by the growth rings, which had have to be over 50-plus per inch. Um, occasionally, I'll take a really good clean cut on a chop saw, and then I'll sand it down, and then I'll pull out uh, the stereo microscope, which I think is 30 power, one of those mm-hmm. Nikon. Like a dissect, uh, dissecting scope? Well, there's a little... Nikon makes a field microscope mm-hmm. uh, that's two lenses and i'm pretty sure it's 30 power it's really fun for looking at things i mean you can even just put it right down on the ground and look at lichen or moss or whatever they're kind of pricey but sometimes you can find them used Hmm. and so that's how you count those really fine rings yeah if i bother to to uh i remember the tree well there were actually two trees that we looked at for uh the thimbleberry bench to honor nels And, uh, yeah, the first one was like pushing a thousand years. Um, and then the second I think was like 760 or something like that. Uh, so it's a lot of work though, uh, to look through a 30 power 
lens and uh, and count those growth rings. It takes a while. So these cedars are growing to be like a thousand years old or older, probably in in some places. How big around are? They? I mean, so sounds like they're pretty dense. If you're saying fifty years to an inch, then they're growing pretty slow. Some of them, at least. Yeah, I think you know I don't have the whole slab, so it's a little hard to tell. Uh, and I don't remember even what I started with. Uh, I think it was around 18 inches wide and did not include a heart. Uh, but, yeah, I think, you know, three to four foot cedar uh, at that point. I mean, there aren't that many of them left. Of course, the, a lot of the best trees uh, of size were taken back in their, our big logging days. Um but there's there's still some out there, and uh, occasionally I'll even salvage a dead one. Mm. But most of the trees I'm salvaging are like three feet and under, and then are a bit faster growing. It's just those north-facing or uh, poor soil cedar yeah. that uh, occasionally get to incredible ages. There is a really large cedar, I'm, now that I'm thinking about it, up Blue Lake in the flood zone. Mm. Uh, it's now flooded, uh, but... Prior to the dam raising, it was in the in the river bottom there. That was, I don't know. It was it was multiple feet in diameter for sure. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. I took pictures of people like against it. Uh, that's probably one of the bigger ones I've ever seen. And it would be interesting to know how how old it was. I guess in principle, even now, one could still go up there and uh, when the water level's a little lower and uh, do a core or something. The cedar wood's probably all still pretty sound. If you could, although the bark's pretty probably shed, so somebody could probably tell what it is. I guess just from the way the branches go, it probably would be pretty clear. And at a certain point, it'll be the one, one of the ones that's not falling apart, <laughs> like all the other ones uh, up there. So you have this this stash of wood, which it, um, presumably you're, you know, it's not the random two by four. I mean, although there are, I imagine there are those sorts of things as well, but in this particular case, you're talking about a kind of a, a unique piece of wood and, and these, these pieces of wood that have something about them that uh, catches the eye of folks like yourself who like to work with wood and see potential for some future project yet to be determined. It's kind of, that's the sense that I get of it. It's like, well, there's something here. I don't know what it is. and I don't have a project right now for it, but I need to hold on to it. That's the gist of it. And, you know, I have to confess that I usually am a little too uh, not picky, (laughs) a little bit too like, oh, that's exciting. That looks cool. And so then every couple of years I go through and, uh, oh, probably half of it ends up in the firewood pile. So that's always the beauty of uh, collecting interesting wood is that it can always heat the house. Uh, but it's funny that you mentioned random two by fours because I did save a bunch of random two by fours um, that were being thrown out from the Stevenson Hall remodel, and some of those uh, ended up being incredible wood. And so mm. I think uh, I don't think these are original to the 1910 building. I'm guessing. Uh, so I would guess either the spruce mill, or they could have even been. Uh, milled at Sheldon Jackson uh, at the sawmill there. But these are uh, interior 2x4s that are a little bit under a full 2x4 inches. But perfect grain uh, for a violin top. So Mm. uh, I went through some of the ones that I salvaged there a couple years ago, looked for the ones with the least nails, and then I would hold it up in the air and tap on it and 
uh, there were a few that were quite resonant as well. And I don't know much about instrument making. I'm not a luthier. And honestly, I've only even talked to a handful of them. But I just thought, well, uh, maybe the ones that are resonant and have a, a certain tone to them uh, will sound more interesting. I don't know. Um, I, I would like to talk to more luthiers who might know. Uh, but yeah, if I see really nice growth rings uh, and they're in the right orientation, uh, apparently we can glue uh, the top of that violin together. And I'm also looking out for other interesting woods that the project, the goal is to have uh, all local wood uh, or at least as much as possible. And so uh, I've got some crab apple, yellow cedar, some interesting red cedar. I don't know if that will make it in there. Uh, definitely some mountain ash. That's European mountain ash. Um, our Sitka mountain ash doesn't really get to a size uh, that's big enough. I don't know if I can squeeze any red alder in there. It's a little soft. And then uh, for the fingerboard on this violin, uh, normally, apparently, it's best to have some a little bit heavier a denser wood. Maple is pretty common. Um, and so for that, I found uh, some old uh, iron bark, which I believe is a eucalyptus that had been laying on the beach for decades. And so I planed that down and uh, the grain's amazing. Uh, I've had it air drying for years and years. So that might just make it into the violin as well. So, yeah, I guess that's one thing that I didn't meant you I mentioned the the social media post that you had of this picture of this square, but as part of that you mentioned that uh you were digging into the stash to find wood for this um violin project, this uh, uh shoot the word falls out of my uh, commission uh that right. for for a violin of of local local woods here. And so, yeah, so is this something you're going to, I mean, you're, you're obviously looking for wood, picking wood for it, presumably giving that to the luthier or, or collaborating with them perhaps to, to refine those choices maybe. And uh, are you going to learn a little bit about how that work happens as, as a part of this project? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the plans are still in the works, but we will hopefully uh, have this violin completed by the summer. Uh, a fellow in Kentucky, uh, Luthier, will be making it. And so uh, he, possibly some of his family, will come up. And uh, I think Sidkins will have an opportunity to hear this violin made largely out of local wood. And one of the things that struck me that the Luthier said is that you can control the sound to a certain extent, but it's always a discovery, which is something I feel like when you're using especially local wood, but wood at all, because wood comes from trees and every tree is unique. So we're I, I've really just been trying to look for the most unique wood in my collection, uh, both for figure, because when people look at a fine instrument, they expect to see some interesting grain. And honestly, most of our woods don't have the figured grain that, you know, we normally think of. But uh, I did find a nice piece of burl from a mountain ash that might make the neck. Um, or actually, that's the head of the violin. Uh, I'm, I'm not much of a classical music guy, so I honestly am pretty ignorant there. But uh, yeah, the luthier has given us some instructions on sizes, and, and we'll send that wood off soon. 
and hopefully in the new year he'll uh, he'll start putting that together. Well, it sounds like a really interesting project. Do you know? You mentioned that you're using that have some crab apples. Is that for like the pegs or uh, the pegs are apparently best to buy, oh, and those okay. are those yeah. are usually ebony. Uh, the crab apple is small. Crab apple tends to have crazy grain, and then it often has uh, cracks and rot in it. But this came from uh, an island, uh, which is where it seems like most of the crab apple grows. Uh, salvaged. And uh, I think it'll probably be the sides. Hmm. And so some violins will have a striking contrast in colors uh, on the sides. So the tentative plan is yellow cedar and crab apple. But uh, I'm trying to leave all the wood large enough that the luthier can make the ultimate choice. And then the other thing is uh, my wood stash is outside. And uh, southeast Alaska is an amazing place to dry wood outside but some of it will probably not survive the drying process. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, the moisture content needs to come down, and that's why I'm getting the wood to him soon so he can carve it down to a rough size, get it drying, and then he can take the the rest of the way down once it's totally dry. Well, it would be interesting to hear how that goes and... and in more ways than one, I guess, as the, as the instrument comes to completion and and is able to be played, the you know you hear about uh, especially Sitka spruce with guitars, mm-hmm. as, as, especially the old Sitka spruces. It sounds like like even beech logs. Something about that. I remember hearing about. I don't know enough of the details. I just remember like these little wisps of information that sort of sometimes stick. And there was also I watched a, a documentary on Steinway pianos. Hmm. Um, some years ago, and they had a they had a, a scene which, if I'm remembering correctly, they had labeled as Prince of Wales Island. But I was like, that's not Alaska. Hmm. <laughs> I think it was a lumberyard in in Washington. Now they may have got the wood from Southeast Alaska uh, uh-huh. from a lumberyard, but their video was not from Southeast Alaska. It sure didn't look like it to me. Um, but that uh, Steinway pianos, grand pianos, you know, the um, cedar was, uh, not cedar, uh, excuse me, um, spruce was another, you know, the, the I guess the resonance there was something that they, they valued for those those pianos. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I don't know if, do you know if there's folks that have made many instruments uh, like out of local wood before? Yeah, I, I, I have heard uh, some projects, um, got a Facebook comment um, that there was a fellow in the Pioneer home who uh, in the 70s was making them. And I think that for the most part, though, people still would use uh, exotic woods, which I mean, exotic to Sitka, right. uh, maple, cherry. Um, and then the top would generally be Sitka spruce. But uh, the luthier we're working with is open to trying just about anything. Hmm. I mean, there is a native maple mm-hmm. that I don't, the only one I've actually ever seen, I think mostly it's not that big, but the only one I've ever seen is at Hannes, Hannes Bay, the Lake Eva mm-hmm. trailhead, basically right by it. There's a pretty big one. It's it growing, like we often see Sitka alder growing, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of this mini trunk cluster. But I think the trunk, trunks you know the the trunks in the cluster are, are 
pretty good size. Um, but I think, I, I think that may be unusual for it to grow. And, and I don't, that's the only, that's the closest place I've seen it to Sitka. I think it's pretty mm-hmm. common in like around Juneau and some other places, right. but for whatever reason, it doesn't seem to grow right around Sitka proper very much. I don't know if it's down in Ketchikan or not, but it is. Yeah. I oh, grew okay. up down there and there, I know there's some in Chatham Strait as well. Oh, okay. On, and, on Baranoff Island side or? Uh, that is a good question. And my memory is a little hazy on yeah. that. It, you know, I, th- I'm thinking that I saw some over on the Admiralty side, but, uh, you know, I couldn't even tell you where. It's uh, an ongoing mystery for me and curiosity that, that who knows how much of it will ever be satisfied, but like, mm-hmm. why is it that some things, it doesn't seem like it's that different and there's mm-hmm. been plenty of time for things to get moved around, but. So it goes. And, you know, we have our, our local introduced maples that seem to like to spread a little bit. I haven't I found an occasional one in, in places that aren't close to, mostly they're close to where the main trees are, but I right. uh, found the occasional one in a, in a place that's a little further afield. And it makes me wonder if, if, you know, hundreds of years from now, if there'll be an established species and part of the, part of the, the, the ecosystem, the uh, European mountain ash, which you mentioned is, is one that definitely trending that way i find those and of course they have the advantage mm-hmm. of berries that birds like so right birds are happy to move them around uh and they yeah they do tend to grow bigger i've seen them grow more shrubby but the, i don't think i've ever seen the sitka mountain ash grow as much more than a tall shrub that same for me yeah yep. i don't know if it's possible if like you grew one if you could make it grow that way but uh maybe somebody's tried but i don't know so yeah, it'd be interesting, interesting project to see see that and and yeah, curious. So the the tree that you would you say iron ironwood is that for the fretboard? Uh, iron bark. Oh, yeah. iron bark. Yeah, and that was is, when you found the the log around here. Or? Uh, you know, it was just a chunk of. Uh, I, I think this was probably a rub rail on a barge. Mm-hmm. Um, I did find a big piece which. Uh, over on Karuzov that had been rolling around in the surf for decades. And that that was out by Shoal Point where uh, there's an infamous story of back in the halibut days when uh, a bunch of guys at the P-Bar decided that they could get 10 cents more for their halibut down in Seattle. So uh, they charged out of the P-Bar and, uh, well, I guess they kind of missed Low Island uh, or missed the turn from Low Island because they, they hit Low Island uh, right there. The wreckage is still over there. So I don't know for sure if it was from that boat, but you could see where this chunk had been rolling around for decades, uh, kind of shaped like a long piece of orzo. Hmm. So, yeah, I find it here and there, uh, and it is incredibly rot-resistant. But my understanding is that it's a eucalyptus species, which I think there are 80-some of. 80 different species of eucalyptus just in Australia alone. Yeah, yeah, they're really diverse in Australia. Some of them have been introduced and are considered mm-hmm. invasive, I think, in California, yep. where their fire regime is a lot different than, you know, the, the native. Um, they burn different, and, and there's issues with that, I guess, as I understand it. But it is – so when you're – so I guess I this then – Brings to the, the image to me that that when you go to beaches, like you go check all the the drift line for for wood and see what's oh, around. It. I mean, you know, I don't have that much space for stashing wood, um, and 
I, I realize too that I see more value in it than most people do. Um, but you know, I've I've given a lot of wood uh, to oh gosh, uh, a handful to different instrument makers, um, pen makers. Uh, there's a traditional Uluak. Uh, we think of them as Ulus, but uh, he's a Uluak maker um, up in Quinhagic, quite far north. And I send him a lot of wood, uh, including um, scraps from wood restorations. So Sapile is a common one, uh, which I can't even, I think that comes from Africa. But uh, if there's scraps in the shop, I'll, I'll, I'll send those up to him. Uh, so, yeah, I, but most of the stuff has to stay on the beach. Uh, you know, I just don't, <laughs> I, I can bring it home, but there's just not enough room at home for it all. Fair enough. Yeah. So, I mean, it is interesting. You, you mentioned salvaging some wood out of, uh, I guess it was Stevenson, you said. And it brought to mind that I've heard stories over the years of, of either, you know, direct people that were participating in a salvage operation. Uh, one in particular that I can remember is uh, speaking with Marge Ward about going over to Shoals Point and getting stuff, getting wood from the Army encampment there. Oh, sure. Post-World War II, probably been in the 50s or 60s. And there's a long tradition of, uh, you know, there's still still a life left in, in those materials and that wood. And it's something that, you know, these days, material stuff tends to be so cheap, relatively speaking. What's expensive is paying people to do stuff which mm-hmm. is a little like even with just clothes i'm like well i have clothes you know i have a jacket that's fine except it needs a new zipper and the new zipper is going to take a couple of hours for somebody to do <laughs> and this beyond my skill level and to it's cheaper to buy a new coat essentially although that that, that feels weird and so i imagine mm-hmm. that's happens a little less often now except with some of these exotic woods or things that are hard to come by but uh, i also get the feeling that I don't know if it's just Alaska or rural life in general. I've given my experience with rural life elsewhere. I suspect it has something to do with it. But this this sort of ethic of salvaging and, and reuse is uh, run, runs pretty deep, and it, it's uh, something that still is ongoing to a certain extent. Absolutely. And I think one thing that we need to perhaps uh, acknowledge or I, I think about a fair bit is that most of these salvaged materials were old growth and the lifespan of something that's old growth is just so much greater, even if it's exposed to the weather. Uh, you know, it has more resins, rarely has sapwood. So even if it sees some years of neglect, uh, it's often still intact. And I think about uh, an island that I've done a fair bit of work on, and there's a building that, uh, you know, the old fir floor, which is only three quarters of an inch thick, is still in halfway decent shape, laying in the mud. Uh, it's not good enough to really be salvaged for anything, but uh, you can still walk right over it, and I think the wood is sound. Whereas if we took something that was three-quarters of an inch flooring today, uh, it would be second, third, fourth growth, and it probably would be rotten in a decade. Hmm. But, you know, maybe uh, maybe that's all for the better, that we're not using old growth for uh making houses that only last 20 or 30 years anyway. Yeah. It is interesting just how 
how things changed over time, you know, the way that people do things and the understanding that people have, the expectations that people have for for mm-hmm. buildings, you know, you think about places where they had sod houses or whatever, like I don't know how long those were expected to last. Uh, and then they just kind of collapse back into the – and I spoke with somebody some years ago who was um, – one of the things that they looked at was, was I believe it was on Sanak Island out um, kind of off the Alaska Peninsula. And they were looking at places that had been occupied, I think, certainly hundreds of years ago and maybe as long as 1,000 or 2,000 years ago. And based on the vegetation around them, that there were differences where there had been these houses hmm. uh, that were long gone. So it's just kind of interesting to think about that, whereas now like concrete structures are going to last a long time in some respects, may not be functional in the way that they were designed, I suppose, but it seems like they, they last a long time. And yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff in building technology, I suppose, and um, both on the material side, but also on the understanding and construction, you know, architecture side, design side, that is well beyond my understanding other than like looking at it through binoculars from far away is what it feels like. <laughs> and the folks that know about that stuff. Um, and the way that those things have changed even in our lifetimes uh, is, is kind of remarkable. But it is – so you work primarily on local material or with mo- local materials as much as possible, salvage materials in, in part. It seems like you have an aesthetic about the kind of wood that you like to use. Um, but I imagine there's also a pragmatism that, that gets balanced like sometimes you just use what you got. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean so I think about – like I had a project this last spring where I really didn't have much notice and uh, people wanted a large timber spiral staircase. So I did my best to get hemlock for that, but it was just impractical. Uh, at that point that I was aware of, there wasn't a single operating kiln in all of Southeast Alaska. Um, a fellow who I've bought a fair bit of wood from has one running now, but uh that just wouldn't have been very practical to dry old growth hemlock um, in four inch thick slabs. So um, I ended up going for dug fir with that. But otherwise, I almost exclusively use local woods uh, and local sawmills, or I'll go out and salvage, salvage the tree myself. And so, yeah, it's uh, I mean, it's it's what inspires me. And so uh, when I go to the hardware store, it those boards don't really feel like they have any heart or soul. And, uh, I mean, I suppose it's no, no small wonder, (laughs) but, uh, you know, most of the world should probably be built from tree plantations, but for those projects that require more care and more attention to detail, uh, I'm happy to try to source them from local sawmills for all sorts of various reasons. Um, but, uh, yeah, that it, it gets me excited. It keeps my interest, and uh, it's it's always a challenge. And so, why not do it? Yeah, it is. I remember talking with you before about you know the the stuff, and every once in a while, you know, I think you'll you'll post a picture or something of the grain or the the way that the trees are growing, and and the um, the stories essentially that are embedded in that. Whether mm-hmm. they can be deciphered or not is another question, I suppose. In some cases. To a certain extent, I suppose yes, but other cases maybe not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it is fascinating. The the as you s- said earlier, it's like each tree is unique, and when you're 
using those in a art, artisanal way, maybe as opposed to a, a sort of like because um, I guess there's different sorts of, of things that purposes that you might be using the wood for. In some cases, it's almost purely pragmatic and structural. It's like, will mm-hmm. this hold up and will it be strong? And that's mm-hmm. that's what we need. And in other cases, it's it's much about the sort of the art of what it sounds like in the case of musical instruments or what it looks like, if the grain is going to be featured and, and those sorts of things. And then what you can do with it just as a practical matter, because it, you know, with the, the hardness of the wood and this versus the softness and what it's can be, you know, the situations in which it will hold up or, you know, for flooring or not flooring as the case may be, <laughs> I suppose some things not very good for flooring won't hold up other things a little better. Um, but yeah, all that kind of goes in, and I suppose is that something that you've just picked up over time, or was that have you have you studied specifically for those kind? I know that they have, um, you know, schools where you can go to learn to be an instrument maker, for example. But I don't know how much of this kind of stuff is. You've t- talked to me in the past about some books that you've referenced uh, or used and found helpful. But how much of the s- sort of wood lore, I guess maybe we'll call it, is. Uh, is stuff that you just kind of have to learn by by doing it and, and talking with others who have done it, and how much is sort of available for people to kind of be taught if that's what they were inclined. That's a good question. Um, well, I think certainly if you want to be a luthier or a cabinet maker um, or a traditional chair maker, there are definitely some interesting resources, both schools. Uh, people who teach books. Um, but I, I have to confess that I have not done much of any of that because, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of worked within the constraints of what is local uh, to me for work, what is local for wood. Um, and, you know, the projects have just varied so much that, I mean, I'm always looking for depth, but you know, I, I suppose I'm, I don't know the percentage, but, you know, maybe a little over half taught. And then the other half comes from working with uh, other people who, you know, often are self-taught themselves or uh, who are part of the great uh, tradition of, you know, one person teaching another. Um, you know, I certainly learned a tremendous amount from my dad, who I asked once, uh, when I was younger to woodworking, uh, I said, well, where did you learn carpentry? And he looked at me like, what kind of question is that? Because he had no idea. <laughs> and I, so I dug a little further and he said, well, he just uh, was pretty much uh, his first job was straightening nails. And, and his dad was uh, <laughs> almost a slave driver. But uh, very industrious, too. So uh, my dad could not even remember learning these things because they happened so young. And, you know, I, to a certain extent, benefited from that where very little was ever explained to me. uh, But I just learned by watching and by doing. And so, you know, I I definitely feel like that's benefited me a great deal. Uh, And then I always talk to the old guys. I mean, I'm I'm. I guess I'm getting there at 50, but uh, I still talk to all the old woodworkers uh, I know, um, shipwrights, and just anyone who's spent a lot of time with wood, even if it's just somebody who's been out there cutting firewood their whole life. 
uh, there's always a lot to learn from these people if, if they're actually paying attention. And, you know, in the days before cell phones and instantly available distractions, I think people paid a little more attention. And, you know, I, I appreciate that. Uh, it's something I feel like growing up here in Southeast. There was a lot more of when I was a kid. And, um, and you know, if, if you talk to anyone uh, older than me who's been around long enough, uh, I, I feel like they have that same knowledge. And usually uh, they're, they're free to share it. So, yeah, I, I'm always talking wood with uh, sawmill guys or uh, whoever, you know, old loggers. Um, there's, there's a lot to learn. I mean, anyone with a wood boat out there knows wood in a very unique way. And, I mean, Sitka has such a large fleet that uh, there's no end of knowledge out there. And, uh, you know, a lot of it will never make it into a book. It's just passed from one person to the next. And uh, I enjoy that. Nice. Yeah, I guess kind of, I mean, maybe not as formal as an apprenticeship sort of model. Maybe at times it is um, for, for some of the particulars. But, uh, yeah, it seems like it's a nice nice way to go if you can – if you have the interest and ability to, to keep working. And so you, over the years, you, I mean, I spent about a year and a half since we, we spoke. And at the time, I think you were focused on making benches. You had several, some, some benches mm-hmm. in the works and you were just mentioning you had a, a spiral staircase that you've, <laughs> that you put together. It was, I guess they're kind of similar in some ways. Uh, each stairs may be like a little bench, but, um, but is that, is, you know, are you continuing in similar lines or is it just kind of like people have, interesting requests and and um and so there's an opportunity for creativity and and collaboration to kind of figure out what's going to work and how best to accomplish it yeah i think that pretty much sums it up um i mean i i feel like if i look back on my career i've always been the person who got called when nobody else wanted to do something so that goes as far as like oh back when allen auditorium needed all the windows uh, put back together uh, when they were falling apart. Well, guess who got to do that? Uh, you know, all thousand panes of glass or whatever it was. <laughs> so uh, I, I think I just haven't said no to enough crazy projects where everyone in their right mind did say no and built experience that way. So uh, yeah, that's kind of where the Spiral staircase and uh, interesting island work, uh, benches, um, these sort of things, I think, go. And, uh, yeah, if it's not a challenge, I'm, I'm generally not interested. And, and I, I think I've also just been lucky that, uh, you know, people uh, bring their craziest ideas to me and, and I usually <laughs> find a way to do it. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think... Uh... We were just talking before we started recording about our last uh, re- conversation that we recorded for the show. We we talked about doing things the slow and the hard way, and uh, <laughs> it seems like. And I remember talking about cutting firewood and and you know mm-hmm. the things that are learned from just paying attention to uh, chopping wood and how it chops and how it doesn't chop and those sorts mm-hmm. of things. So if folks are of a mind and and to to sort of dive a little more into those sorts of topics with us they can the that that conversation is is in the archives on on my website it's connector.org slash raven but uh, yeah it is it is fun to yeah to think about it just like yeah as you say it's 50 years old like when i was a kid that was old 
it doesn't feel as old as I'm not quite there yet, but it, I'm not far either, and <laughs> it doesn't quite feel so old right now. Um, although, although it's uh, has a way of creeping up on you, I suppose, uh, and you start wondering why are people doing things the hard way. <laughs> well, might have been how I used to do it too. Um, or as I like to say, sometimes uh, when I'm talking to my son, I, it's like I think he has I think he has more ambition than sense. And I guess the way you get more sense than ambition is to embrace the ambition and develop a little sense, <laughs> and hopefully survive the process of doing that. <laughs> I guess that's always the always the hope. But that's that's what you learn from, and and um, yeah. And if you're lucky, you have good stories to share out out of it all. And uh, and good good experience and, and ability and skills that that then you can bring bring to bear in other other circumstances. But I know one of the things that you like to do is get out and explore. And it's been a little while since we talked. I was curious if there's any any places or adventures that that you've been on that have have uh, were of interest that you might be uh, willing to talk about. Well, I, I have to admit that this last, uh, oh, year, I have been working a lot, uh, mostly on islands. And so, you know, that just being out in the skiff every day is great, uh, spending most most of my time outside. Uh, so I haven't gotten that far, but uh, have, have been getting up into the mountains a bit. Um, last year had a really fun... Uh, I think it was my birthday that we just took the skiff out and it was super calm and hopped up on uh, Vitzgary, which was neat. I'd been wanting to go out there for decades to see that stone mound. Oh, right. Um, the, I assume it's it – they. I've seen it. I assume mm-hmm. that they put it together as a signal um, foundation. Mm-hmm. That's my understanding. I, I had a book at one point when I – uh, was a young adult and worked with the Forest Service uh, that uh, it talked about the lighthouses of Alaska. And I think that it was an Irish or Scottish stonemason who got stationed out there for a whole oh, summer. Oh, actually had to live on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so it was a, it's, it's a dry stone uh, giant mound. And there was a photo of oh, him so out there. So it doesn't have any, no any mortar cement or anything? Wow, mm-hmm. that's impressive then because I think that, I mean... I've watched from the bridge when there's seas out there. It was it was weird because mm-hmm. it was actually a pretty calm day, but there must have been a storm somewhere, and the waves were like it was it was near sunset, and you could see the waves just like the splashes towering above the top of yeah. the the marker out there. And so I I can I mean maybe it's a big enough island that that unless it's a really high tide, it doesn't actually wouldn't actually go awash at all. But but still after. How many years? It's probably been a long time. I think it. Yeah, I think that was early 1900s. Yeah, I, so I mean, like some of it has, then. some of it has eroded, uh, but it, there's still a lot that's quite intact. Um, and there's uh, there's pieces of a couple boats hmm. on there. Um, so yeah, just fun stuff. I mean, I I really like an open skiff for just being able to go places like that or, you know, go right out to the Cape and uh, scramble up onto a beach or something uh, when it's calm. Uh, those, those are always uh, my most exciting days. Yeah. I, one of the things I had the opportunity to do a few years ago was spend 
it was this time of year in Silver Bay. We were on an open skiff, and they were that's when they were um, driving all the pilings for the dock. Mm. And so we were out there, and we would spend the day out on this skiff in in some pleasant weather, some windy weather. Uh, the wind. Uh, one of the things that was kind of funny is one day the wind was blowing out of Sawmill Cove, but as you approached Bear Cove, it was blowing the other direction. So it was mm-hmm. blowing back out. And when you got to Bear Cove, then it was blowing t- towards the end of the bay. And then when you got a little further out that way, it was coming back up, you know, from the end of the bay towards. So, so it was like the wind direction changed, blowing four different directions uh, as you went across. And, and in some of those cases, it was during an outflow event. So I imagine what was happening is that wind was coming across and then splitting right as it as it came out through these valleys but uh and there's some pretty good waves in there but the thing that really struck me about it is that i remember back in the mill days that there were tugboat operators that they were just out there all the time and i don't know how much they were paying attention but um it was it was fascinating to me just for this two-week period where we were out there maybe it was over two or three weeks not every day but most days and just being out there i was like oh it would be interesting to just if, if you had a reason to be out here all the time to just see what's happening. And so I guess that, that kind of com, comes up because as you're commuting to these island, you know, repeatedly day after day, you know, it's just like a lot of days are pretty similar, I suppose. But but just the, the change over the seasons and with different weather and birds coming and going or other things happening. Is there anything that you kind of noticed as, as just this being part of this routine where especially in an open skiff it's not like you're in in a wheelhouse where you can kind of be protected and just as long as there's no logs you're not worried about it kind of thing oh yeah i mean it's uh it is extra work but i i feel like the the reward is uh is greater um yeah one of the things i noticed uh i haven't been working over on whale island for a while but uh that was always a fun one because uh Every day going and coming, uh, the wind dictated which route I took. And so there, I guess there's about a half a dozen different routes there. And so that was always fun because I'd uh, round Harris Island and it's like, oh, which way is the wind coming from? Oh, I'm going to head straight out there or, oh, I'm going to head toward town um, and then coming home too. And so that's always been pretty enjoyable. And then, uh, yeah, neat stuff with birds. Like, uh, I think it was about 10 days ago. Maybe maybe it's been a couple weeks. But right at the end of uh, all those blows, uh, there was a lot of birds flying through. And we just barely were out in the skiff. Uh, my youngest son was with me. And we ran into a flock of snow geese right on the water there. Mm. And that was just really cool. I mean, I just, I love seeing them out there. And, I mean... Obviously, most geese don't just land out in the middle of the channel. Uh, this was only about a hundred of them. I think that there have been much larger groups. And then even this year, I saw on Facebook that there were more out by Seamart. But uh, they're just so fun to see. And then uh, the islands, when they're a little further out, it seems like uh, you get a little better view of the Canadian geese that are flying over too. Because that same day, there were, I think there were thousands. It just went for several hours um i mean it wasn't constant but it was yeah big big flocks of hundreds at a time for hours yeah i remember that day i had stuff i had to be home for at about 10 in the morning and um i 
got a text from somebody that said, oh, there's a lot of geese flying out over the causeway, you know, out mm. past the airport. And I was like, I don't know. All right, I'm going to run out and take a look. I went out to Seamart first just to look from there. And I could see birds like just bare, like little tiny dots out over the sound. And then I saw some closer. I was able to tell there were mer- like flocks of mergansers flying over. Mm. That day there were, I also saw flocks of snow geese and and you know the Canada geese that were all flying over as well. I didn't see any of the like the huge numbers that people, but um, somebody that that is out at the airport told me, oh yeah, there were tons of stuff flying over there over the course. Of, I saw you posted that there were bunches of geese. Other people mentioned it, just all flying over. And yeah, these flocks of geese. A couple different years now, there's been flocks of snow geese that land on the water out off Sandy Beach or Seamark, kind of in that area. They don't stay long from, Mm -hmm. it's just like they land and then they take off again. And it makes me wonder, because I don't ever remember being aware of that even 10 years ago, but it's also one of those things like the, for a variety of reasons, there's a lot more communication about birds than there used to be locally. Mm -hmm. Um, Facebook makes that easier, but also I think it's just like cultivating those kind of conversations. Like I'm, I've been interested. And so I've been encouraging people to let me know when they, when they see these things. And so that could be as big an area. Like maybe that's not unprecedented. Maybe that is actually, you know, every couple of three years, there'll be a bunch of geese that land and take off again, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. But if you're not there, you don't know. And it's easy to not be there because it's a you know short event over one day or whatever. And when you're sitting at home, you just like every day is just like the other. You don't really think about how much might be going on out there. And so it's easy to just assume that it's always the same. But that's just like that one day was the day that all these mm-hmm. geese. A few years ago, there was like two days, like all the sparrows showed up one day. And then there was this residual effect. But like... In that one day in 2021, uh, there was tons of sparrows and warblers around too, but mostly like golden crown sparrows. There were hundreds of them along Old Airport Road. And so it's just something about the way the weather goes and they get stacked up behind a front or something and they mm-hmm. all just fall out. And, you know, every once in a while it hits town. It makes me wonder like, oh, it could be, if it was 100 miles north here, we'd never know. It could be just as right. many birds and they all fly over at night or whatever or just are flying over and we don't notice them. So it is, yeah, it is one of the things about being out or being in communication with people that are out at times, you know, collectively we see a lot more than we are able to see individually. So it's been fun to to see, like you mentioning the geese that day and, and others as well, seeing them. I unfortunately didn't get to experience it quite as much as I might have liked, but uh, but it was still fun to see the see the reports coming in. And, and if people are interested, you mentioned seeing it on Facebook. People are posting in uh, Sitka Birds Facebook group. So if you're on mm-hmm. Facebook and, and want to, you can check out the Sitka Birds Facebook group. There's also an email list if you're more inclined to do email. It doesn't get as much um, popularity. It's not as much activity there, but there are folks that are posting from time to time. And you can find that on my website, just sitkanature.org. There's a place you can sign up for the email list if you're – it's funny to call emailed old school at this point, but I guess it is. <laughs> I mean, relative to Facebook. Even these days, Facebook is kind of old school, I guess, uh, which is also kind of funny. But I guess that's what tells me I'm getting close to 50 instead of <laughs> instead of in my 20s anymore. Uh, so that's that's kind of funny. I do remember seeing a picture of you – I think it was probably from last year, but maybe, maybe not – of um, – like up in the pyramids, did you hike up there? Uh, Somewhere up back, yeah, maybe behind Lisovskia yeah, or something yeah, like that. I, yeah, I, I kind of, I try to get up 
kind of most of the peaks that I can see from my house, at least now and then. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I like getting up all those, and uh, some of them don't have the easiest approaches or they're steep or whatever, but uh, just went up a new one uh, this last weekend, and um, don't think I'm quite at liberty to say which one that was. But, uh, yeah, it's it's just fun, um, you know, and even if uh, you end up going through a big old <laughs> crummy section of 100-year-old yellow cedar die-off on the way up or down, uh, you always see something. Yeah, it is one of my goals, I guess. Goals probably not the right word, but one of my intentions is to um, – because I ha- keep tracks on my phone of places mm-hmm. that I've gone and or I have observations that I post in iNaturalist, I can look at the map of all those things. And when I'm zoomed out, it just looks like a mass of stuff over Sitka because mm-hmm. that's almost entirely where I am. But when you zoom in, you see, oh, there's all these – here's the obvious Harbor Gavin Trail. And mm-hmm. then there's this Cascade Creek watershed that is has almost nothing in it, like all these big – I'm like, well, I need to go in and fill in some of those gaps. And mm-hmm. there's – at times, there's reasons that those are gaps. Like, it's not a good way to go, and um, right. so so I probably don't need to like torture myself through some of that. But at least explore and looking for those little because there are these little pockets, and that's one of the things that fascinates me. Is just like mm-hmm. might be a little cascade of or even something small, like just a yeah. little little um, little tumble of, of water over a rock mm-hmm. with some ferns and mosses or something that that is just kind of a, a sweet little place that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you aren't within 10 feet of it, you wouldn't know it was there. And so kind of exploring Absolutely. out, exploring and, and finding those little pockets is something that for me, I find motivating. I'm a lot more inclined to do that than I am to go far afield, uh, you know, which I don't begrudge people that like to go further afield, but that's just not, not really my thing. So it's mm-hmm. fun to kind of explore those things. And uh, you mentioned the open skiff thing and my son recently got he has a 13 foot whaler he finally got running and we were we're it, it's it's still working out the kinks in in the engine reliability and that that's kind of a thing <laughs> so staying close to home and stuff but i've gone out with him just uh in um you know just around close to town out to we went out to viscary one day and then back into deep and lid and you know just stuff like that but mm, it's right. uh i've i found it you know, I've been in bigger boats, and it's nice to be in a bigger boat that's comfortable, especially if you're going to go very far, that kind of thing. But there's something very sort of satisfying, I guess. I don't know. I enjoy it. Let's just put it that way. Even though you're you're very much exposed to the elements, and we'll see how much I enjoy it in December. But, uh, you know, in September, October, it was fine. Going out, and the birds didn't seem to mind much. Like, I think because the whaler's such a low profile, and you're just sitting there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, it's pretty zippy so you can get places and poke around and not have to worry too much about, I mean, you gotta be careful about rocks as always, but you know, you're not drafting a lot of water. So, um, right. so you have a little more, little, little less to worry about there. Let's put it that way. And, and there's so many little pockets to explore in the little bays and inlets mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And this time of year, the birds, we were going out and checking, uh, Eastern channel. One of the things we were looking for fallow ropes, see if any red fallow ropes might show up. We didn't. Didn't find any of those, but um, there are thick-billed murs out there. And best I can tell, the most consistent and easiest time to see thick-billed murs is kind of the fall in Eastern Channel. And Mm -hmm. there's plenty of common murs out there, but there's often thick-billed mur or two or three out there with them as well. Close to town, it can be a tough 
job to pick out thick build MERS from all the MERS out at Lazaria. Um, it's possible I've done it, but wow. uh, it has been interesting to just kind of be like, well, that's close to town. It's relatively easy to get to. Um, you don't have to have like super nice weather. I mean, it can't be too bad because mm-hmm. Eastern Channel can get sloppy, but it's not like Lazaria, <laughs> right? Where right. you're really hanging out there in the wind if, if it comes up. So, uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to uh, having a chance to run around a little bit more and just kind of poke around places and, and see what's there and uh, kind of explore with. Yeah. Yeah, it's good fun. I, I'm thinking it makes me think of uh, the massive schools of salmon that were right on the surface this year, which mm. uh, I have never seen it like that. I don't know why they just were so close to the surface. In but, the fall or? Uh, late summer, early fall. Just yeah. Returning like pinks and stuff or? Well, you know, I, I mean, sometimes it can be hard to tell what kind of fish they are mm-hmm. uh, if they're at any kind of distance. But, uh, yeah, huge schools of pinks and definitely chums. Um, I mean, in the open skiff, I see a lot of kings out there, too, mm. uh, just on the surface. Um, sometimes it seems like they're almost asleep. Hmm. Uh, but, no, these just, like, by Silver Point and over toward Camp Coogan, you know, just by the hundreds, like, where... Um, you know, maybe I took a video. I could post that. Maybe I did post it. I can't remember. But uh, where, like, there would be twenty fish jumping out of the water, like at any time, anywhere you looked. Wow. Uh, and so, for some reason, they seemed to kind of bunch up. Um, so, I mean, I don't think they were feeding, but they just were bunched up for some reason or other for a few weeks. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, sometimes you just see crazy stuff like that, and I. And I was wondering, you know, when I was out there, uh, would people in a closed-in cabin actually even see these fish? I don't know. Maybe if they're jumping, but if not, then... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember actually doing an observing job at uh, Whale Park where uh, they were redoing the redoing the lightering facility here. They needed to, Mm -hmm. like somebody ran into it or something, they had to redo the pilings there, and... Uh, it was loud, so they needed somebody at the bridge and somebody at Whale Park watching for the far end of the, the zone. Oh, sure. And so I was there. And I remember seeing king salmon swimming right just right mm-hmm. by the shore. Like I, mm-hmm. It was because I was there for hours at a time just standing there watching that I would see them. And it wasn't like it was unusual for them to do that during the time that I was there, um, you know, based on that one experience. But I, I almost certainly never would have noticed it if I hadn't been there for that extended period because I'd go down there. And, and if mm-hmm. I was down there... I wouldn't be watching the water the whole time. I'd be looking at stuff on the rocks or whatever. And the chances of me looking down into the water at the right time to see one swimming by and then to see it often enough to realize that, oh, this is like they keep doing this. (laughs) And I'm sure that those ones, or I don't know, uh, I suspect those ones were uh, returning to Bear Cove, you know, that there. But, um, yeah, it sounds like it was a really big return of chums and pinks this year, or chums in particular, and Mm -hmm. prices weren't great, so... Yeah, maybe there was a lot more fish to be around. But that is always something, and it's something that, uh, you know, my son is very interested in doing pelagic birds, and mm. and there's not a lot of, certainly not a lot of common knowledge, understanding of, of what they're doing specifically out off Sitka Sound, in Sitka Sound, and out off Sitka Sound. There may be people who have experience out there that know stuff, but, you know, I'm curious, like, what are the patterns? Are there any, or is it just really variable from year to year? I'm sure there's a lot of year-to-year variability, but are there patterns, seasonal patterns, those sorts of things? And so I've been encouraging him to, you know, even when he's out there now working as a mm-hmm. deckhand, just to start paying attention. He's 
now got two seasons, the better part of two seasons. He was there all summer this year and, and a good chunk of the summer last year. And just be like, yeah, and it was different. He saw different stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of it was that they fished different places. They had a different boat and the weather was different. And so like in some weather you would go one place and another another. And right. where the fish were was different. And so they were, of course, going after king salmon and other things. So um, so that influenced things as well. But, um, yeah, that's something that will be – it's always fascinating. People that are out and about and just what patterns that, that you noticed over time. That That's the only way you're going to know. If you're not out there, mm-hmm. it, it's just it's. If you happen to see it, it just feels like an accident. Uh, if it if it isn't something that you are out regularly observing and you don't know, is it an accident or is it a regular thing? So, um, yeah, as we are getting close here to wrapping up, is there anything? Yeah, curious if you have any sort of ambitions for. Well, it's the winter time, I guess. We're usually a little less ambitious in the winter time, but uh, a little less daylight to work with. But uh, over the the next few months and years, any particular projects or or uh, aspirations you have for getting out and about and exploring? Well, uh, I think just broadly, uh, I've pretty much resolved that. Uh, this last summer was the last summer I would uh, fiend quite so hard on any project because uh, it's it's great being out in the skiff uh, and it's good to be island hopping, but uh, the world is a lot bigger than just Sitka Sound and and especially just my narrow little part of Sitka Sound. So I'll I'll definitely try to get out more next summer and uh, but yeah we've been trying to hit the mountains more. Um, that's fun. Find some new up high musk eggs and uh you know i think this summer or the, i'm sorry this winter we'll definitely get out on the boat and spend some quality time out uh you know there's something when the days are short uh you know it's a lot of a lot of night but uh there's the days are still long enough to get out and see some cool things and uh yeah i, I really i feel like once you get the other side of surges narrows or uh, or quite a ways further south uh it you know might just be in my mind but i feel like things change a bit uh you're just that much further away from people and boats and uh yeah there's just a different quality so more of that i think about uh you know one time i was just walking along the beach um i i think it was just bottom part of huna sound and i was walking real slow through the woods and i heard crunching and I was like, what in the heck is that? It was just the weirdest sound. And I just went really, really slow and came upon a family of otters eating uh, a couple of baby halibut. Oh. And I just watched them for probably 10 minutes before one of the adults turned around and then saw me and then made a little noise and they all <laughs> scooted <laughs> off really fast. But, uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff that Oh, it's nerdy and all that, but it it gets me excited, and you know I'll remember that forever. Nice. Well, yeah, I look forward to chatting about some of your future adventures on a future conversation. But appreciate you coming in to to visit with me. Yeah, thanks, Matt. It's always fun. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded this past week with Zach Leperrier. I want to thank him for taking some time to visit with me, and thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there, especially if you're seeing an unusual bird. It is the season that we often get some vagrants around, as we have in this past week. Please feel free to let me know. You can send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. 
Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.